Hey, thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. Here at Reveal, our mission is simple. Find God, find others, and find yourself. For more information, visit us online at revealvineyard.com. Well, if you weren't with us last week, we resumed a, a new old series uh, called Jesus, the Greatest Show on Earth, where we have been studying uh, John's gospel. We're studying the life of Jesus according to the Apostle John, John's gospel. Uh, and we've been out of this for about a year. We've been on this, this topic uh, for about 18 months. We'd hit four chapters. We'd come out of it. We'd come back, hit three chapters. Uh, and so we've been off of it for about a year as I've been waiting for Easter to roll around because the final chapters in John's gospel, remember gospel just means good news, so it's John's good news. The final chapters all deal with the passion of Christ, passion coming from the Latin word meaning suffering. And so it moves very quickly uh, from about chapter 13 on to chapter 21. Uh, all takes place in less than 24 hours. And so I've been waiting so we could look at the passion of Christ right around the Easter season, leading us into Easter Sunday where we celebrate uh, the resurrection. The Gospel of John was written by John, go figure. John was a disciple of Jesus, but he wasn't just one of the 70 or one of the 12. John was actually one of the, the inner core or the, the inner three. Uh, he may have been uh, possibly the closest to Jesus, we're speculating. John writes about himself in his own gospel. When he refers to himself, he says, the disciple Jesus loved, which is a whole other thing that, you know, you kind of refer to yourself as Jesus' favorite. Uh, but he also had some inside information. He was the only one at the uh, Last Supper who knew that it was Judas who would betray Jesus. And so he's writing from a personal experience, firsthand knowledge of what he experienced during his time with Jesus, which makes his gospel somewhat unique. Matthew also writes from a first-hand experience, but Mark and Luke were never with Jesus. They write from interviews and such like that. So when you read read John's gospel, his good news, he's writing from what he experienced firsthand. And he tells us that he experienced a lot. In John 20, he says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs, in the presence of his disciples, and we could add, and I was one of them, John says, which are not recorded in this book. He says, look, I saw a lot of things take place during my time with Jesus, and I didn't write all of them down. But then he says, but here's why I wrote some of them down. John 20, verse 31. He says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the anointed, the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He said, look, I witnessed a lot of amazing stuff. I didn't write all of it down, but I did write some of it down. And what I wrote was for people who come after me that they would discover Jesus and in turn discover life. Now for some time, scholars have debated whether or not the book of John was actually written by John. Uh, some would say that it was written some hundred years uh, after Jesus plus. Uh, and adding fuel to this thought was that we did not have any early manuscripts of John's gospel, which led some to believe that it was written uh, late into the second century, which uh, would have put John in the grave. He wouldn't have been able to write it. And so there was this debate. 1920, uh, we found what is known as the Ryland Papyrus, or P52. Uh, We'll put it up on the screen there. It's a small document uh, that was found in Egypt and dated to 150 AD. It's actually 
uh, a small section of John's gospel. Actually, it's John 18, the passage that we'll be studying today, uh, dated to 108 feet, eight, uh, 150 AD. Now, we know that John's gospel, we're fairly certain, was written in Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. Now, for this to have been found in Egypt, keep in mind there's no planes, trains, and automobiles. There's no printing press. Everything was written by hand, meaning circulation took a while. So for it to get from Ephesus to Turkey was something that would have taken some time. And by putting these things together, scholars would date that the book of John's gospel could have been written 80 AD, as early as mid-50s. Now keep in mind, putting that into context, Christ was crucified 30 AD or 33 AD, depending how you read the numbers. Meaning that the gap from the occurrence to the writing is extremely small which should lend credibility to what we're reading. Anytime you look at the science of textual criticism, one of the things you look at is the gap from occurrence to first publication. And we have a gap that is very tiny from what John experienced to when it was written. Add to that by the name of Irenaeus, who died in 2002. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, the John that wrote the gospel. John was a disciple of Jesus. So get the timeline. There's Jesus There's John, there's Polycarp, and there's Irenaeus. Irenaeus writes in his writing, he was an early church father, stood against uh, various forms of heresy uh, against the, the Christian faith. He says in his writings that through his conversations with Polycarp, who was discipled by John himself, that Polycarp said... Uh, that John wrote this gospel. Polycarp spoke about his conversations with John and, quote, other disciples that were with Jesus. So we have on very good authority a very short time gap. To me, I think it's very cool. I can tell by your faces. You don't care. But a very short time gap from the occurrence, Jesus, John, Polycarp, Irenaeus, that what we read was written by the disciple John for the purpose that those who would come after him would find life in Jesus, the Son of God. We could close in prayer there, but we won't because I know you're not impressed right now. So we'll keep moving on and kind of see what John has to say about who Jesus is and looking primarily, specifically, at the final hours of his life. So join me as we pray. God, uh, I love your word. I love how it instructs us. I love how it uh, paints a picture of who you are And as a good father, and it speaks of your desires for us and your plans for us, plans of a blessing and plans of goodness to be brought upon us, plans of your presence to be with us even when life turns against us. Your promise is not to remove us from tension and trials, but your promise is to walk with us through those things. And today, would you encourage us, all of us, I pray today that we would sense your love and your goodness and your acceptance of us. For those who feel apart from you, would you step closer to us today? Would you stir in us? Hey, for someone, uh, just got a very strong sense that in this message today, just be open I just got a sense that there's a couple people here today that um, you've been kind of waiting for God for something, and today he's going to show himself, reveal himself uh, to you. 
and um, two people specific I felt, and it doesn't happen all the time, but I felt it very strongly, so uh, God, I pray however you want to do that, whatever that would look like, that you would show yourself, and especially maybe to those who have been waiting and questioning and have doubts, and today, would you reveal Jesus as the Son of God, as the Anointed One, as the way, the truth, and the life, the Good Shepherd, in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're in John 18. John 18 shines a spotlight on one of the more disliked characters in the Bible. He was a uh, a schemer, a conniver, uh, who thought that he could get Jesus to do his bidding. And when he realized that Jesus could not be manipulated, he bailed and he went his own way. Our character in John 18 is Judas Iscariot. He's one of the 12 disciples who is most famously known for betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Judas was a betrayer a pretender. He portrayed a persona to get what he wanted. He lived by the motto, what's in it for me, uh, and lived to advance his own agenda. Now, we don't know a lot about Judas, but what we can gather is that his proximity to Jesus was about personal gain, uh, that uh, he, he was looking for what he could acquire, what uh, would be in it for him Now, whether that personal gain uh, was always there or whether he slid into that midway through his time with Jesus, we're, we're unsure. There's debates on that. But we know uh, through what we gather through Scripture that his proximity to Jesus, at least at some point, was really about what's in it for him. Now, before we're too hard on Judas, uh, let me remind us that we all kind of have a little Judas in all of us. Meaning that we've all tried to get God to do our bidding We've all gone to God and tried him to get uh, to act in a way that was uh, in beneficial to my cause. There's something in us that wants to leverage God and his power for our benefit. And we've, we've all tried to make deals with God. And God, if you only get me out of this, I will never miss church again, I promise you. Oh God, if only you would, I will, st- I will never swear again, at least the really bad ones, I will stop. We've all done it. I was younger and I prayed, God, if you would only make her my girlfriend, I will enter the priesthood. Which didn't make sense, but I was stupid, priests and women. But anyways, so we all have tried to present God with some solution that works in our favor. We've all tried to manipulate God in some way. Second, uh, Jesus was a means to an end at some point for all of the disciples who didn't fully get who he was and what he was about, especially early on. Matthew's gospel tells us of uh, a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, to obey all the commands, which he replies, I've done that, which, you know, he he hadn't. And so Jesus says, well, I'm going to hit you a little closer to home. And he says, then go and sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And this rich young man went away rejected and and disheartened because he had much to lose. Jesus goes on and tells his disciples that those who have much find it hard to surrender because they have so much to forfeit. And as they continue the conversation, Peter speaks up and he asks Jesus in Matthew 19, he said, we have left everything to follow you. In other words, he's saying, look, we've forsaken our business, our fishing nets, boats, homes, we're all in. And then he says, what then will there be for us? Peter's asking, look, we've done everything that you've commanded. What's in it for me? What's what's in it for us? What is the benefit coming back 
to us. So as we read about Judas, I want us to try to pick out how his story can apply to us. And remember that there has been at times a little Judas in all of us. Judas had Old Testament expectations, which most of the disciples had. That means that they lived as their fathers did and as their father's fathers did with the anticipation that God would establish his kingdom by sending a Messiah, a Redeemer, an anointed one, to free Israel. Hope in that kingdom and the role the Messiah would play in that kingdom varied somewhat among the various uh, subgroups in Judaism. Some believed that the Messiah would be a warrior that would gather an army to throw off Roman occupation. Some believe that the Messiah, the Essenes, for example, who uh, is, is where the, in the Qumran region where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you've heard of that, they believe that not only would the Messiah uh, be a warrior, but that he would also uh, uh, bring reform to the temple. And so there was these various thoughts. But regardless of how you pictured the Messiah or how, what you anticipated the Messiah would be like, most Jews were living in a state of expectancy, passed down from generation to generation, waiting for the Messiah to come and liberate, deliver the Jewish people from Roman occupation. Now those who were expecting this Messiah to be a military leader expected that he would form an army to throw off Roman rule. And it appears that Judas kind of fell into this camp. They believed that Jesus would stir uh, an undercurrent of a rebellion, that he would begin to gather the disgruntled and the oppressed and the overlooked and the beaten down, and and that when the time was right, uh, they would gather uh, and they would rise up against Roman tyranny and they would declare independence and forever the Jewish state would, would be free. But there was one problem. Although Jesus portrayed many of the characteristics that they assumed the Messiah would have, there was one thing that was missing. He didn't hate the Romans. Matter of fact, Jesus had very little to say about the Romans. If he had anything to say about anyone, he was talking about the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. He said things like he called them a brood of vipers. He compared them to whitewashed tombs that looked good on the exterior, but on the interior they smelled of death and decay. And Judas knew that if we're going to usurp Roman authority... We were going to need every Jew involved, including and especially the Pharisees that Jesus keeps ticking off and pushing away. And they also realized that in order for us to have a chance at this, because there had been many that tried to rise up and Rome would come in and squash it, that it would take not only warriors, but it would take weapons, meaning that the treasury needed to be increasing because they were going to need money to purchase weapons. And Jesus was never interested in acquiring. He always just kept giving stuff away, which presented a problem for the one who was the group treasurer by the name of Judas. We see his frustration in Matthew 26 during a moment of extreme generosity that kind of pushed him over the edge. Now we're going to read John 18, but I'm trying to give us a backstory that'll push us into John 18. Gives us a glimpse into the life of Judas. Our story today takes place in Bethany. We've got a little map there to show you, just so you, I'd like you to have an idea of where we're at outside of uh, Jerusalem. And Bethany's kind of this podunk, so this is a little place. Not a lot happens there. And uh, We're six days before the Passover, so everything that we talked about yesterday, the Last Supper, uh, Jesus leaving the city gates with them, heading to the garden, were six days prior to that. Uh, and Matthew records 
events that served as a tipping point pushing Judas over the edge. Matthew 26. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Now Matthew writes Simon the leper as if it should mean something to us. It doesn't mean anything to us. Uh, but it must have meant something to the early readers. It's like, you remember Simon the leper? And they'd have been like, yeah, I remember. I heard about him and my father told me about him. I remember. And hey, just thank goodness we no longer refer to ourselves by our infirmities. How you doing? I'm Marty the asthmatic. I'm James the diabetic. It's good to meet you, right? Thank goodness. I'm Bruce the irritable bowel syndrome. Thank goodness we don't, right? Thank goodness that all that's over. So, verse 7. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar full of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head while he was reclining at the table. Now break this down. They're not sitting at the table. They're reclining. It's the custom of the day. Uh, So pillows around. And there was a a woman approaches Jesus with an alabaster jar. And in order to open the jar, you had to crack off the top uh, and break it. And so the contents of the bottle were typically all used up because you didn't want it to go to waste. And so this woman approaches Jesus and she cracks uh, the neck of the container and begins to pour this fragrant oil uh, upon Jesus' head. Some of the gospel writers say upon his, his feet as well. And the aroma filled the room. It would have poured out into the street because this was the good stuff. It wasn't, you know, a Walmart brand. Matter of fact, other gospels, the gospel of Mark tells us the perfume could have been sold for about a year's wages. Now, median income in surprise is about 58,000, household income. Imagine somebody coming to your house and you take 58 grand of whatever and just start to pour it on the person or as we would probably say, waste it. That's what's taking place. You could have heard the gasp as the crack of the bottle occurred, and then as they began to pour, as she began to pour it on Jesus, there was some frustration in the room. And this is kind of leading us into uh, a conflict sit- situation. Look at verse 8. When the, disciple, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they ask? This perfume could have been sold at a high price, a year's wage actually, And the money given to the poor. Now Matthew tells us it was the disciples who were indignant. One of the other gospel writers just say there were people in the room who were indignant. But John tells us something. John tells us it may have been, uh, the disciples may have been thinking it. But he said there was one disciple that was stirring the pot. And John tells us it was actually Judas. Go to that passage in John there, will you? He's speaking of Judas. John says he said this. Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. John's like, look, I'm not playing around. Some of the other guys are afraid to call him out. Remember, this is written after the betrayal. And John, looking back, says, I don't like that guy. That's my interpretation, right? This guy betrayed Jesus. And as he's writing, he's like, I'm going to call out the one who was stirring the pot. And it was this cat Judas who was skimming off the top. Now, this is going to be important to know in, in just a little bit. Verse 10. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, we're back in Matthew. Why are you bothering this woman? In other words, he's saying, look... This is hers. She can do with it as she pleases. Why are you even worrying about it? And then he says, she's done a beautiful thing to me. Look at verse 11. The poor, he says, you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for a burial. Now, if breaking the alabaster jar wasn't enough, if pouring a year's wages over the head of Jesus wasn't enough, out of left field, Jesus begins to talk about this 
burial. In order to have a burial, there needed to be a death. Now imagine hearing this as the disciples in that room. You'd be think, they'd be thinking, you can't die because you're the Redeemer. You're the Messiah. We've waited for you for generations, and we've placed all of our hope and our future on your shoulders. And if you die, here was the big question, what happens to us? Verse 13, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And we read through that passage, but it's interesting. Interesting. If you would have heard that for the first time, you would have been like, what gospel preached throughout the world? What are you talking about? We're in Bethany. This is, this is a small little gathering. It's Simon the leper's home. Keyword being leper. Probably hasn't had many people over. No one's going to be talking about this tomorrow, let alone throughout the world in the future. And yet Jesus, as he predicted, here we are 2,000 years later, talking about this woman and what she did. Now notice what happens next. This was all too much for Judas. I was thinking, you let her year's wages go down the drain. And if this is what you're about, if you're not concerned what I'm concerned about, if I can't get you to do my bidding, then I'm out. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, now Matthew calls him out here, went to the chief priest. So Judas ducks out of the party. We don't know what excuse he gave, but you know he goes to the chief priest, verse 15, and asks, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? Now why go to the religious leaders? Because they had enough of Jesus and they were looking to seize him but could never go to that extent because there were always crowds around him and he didn't want to incite a riot. And so Judas goes to them and says, I could deliver Jesus to you if the price is right. Now we don't know why he took this step. Maybe he was frustrated at what he saw at the party. Maybe he was fed up with the teachings of Jesus that told him to turn the other cheek and to love even when you were hated. Maybe he wanted the revolution against Rome and Jesus wasn't going that way. Maybe the money had run out and this was his last gasp effort, a ditch effort to kind of benefit. And uh, Maybe he thought he could force Jesus' hand by uh, if he was arrested, to, he would step out of the role of a rabbi and into the role of a warrior. Maybe it was revenge. Maybe he thought the last three years was a waste and I'm getting something out of this. And so they counted out, look at the next verse, counted out 30 for him, 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Jesus wa- Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas spends the next six days, remember we're six days out from the Last Supper, from the arrest. He spends the next day, six days, looking for his opportunity, carefully plotting his next step with care and precision. And he waits for a moment of solitude. Now, we jump ahead six days. We're back in the book of John. We're going to be in 13. We're getting to John 18, I promise you. In John 13, it's the Last Supper, right? At some point, Judas rejoins the group. They're gathered together in the upper room for one last meal. Jesus takes off his rabbinical robe, he puts on a towel, and he kneels down and he begins to wash the disciples' feet as a way of saying, this is what leadership looks like in the kingdom. You are to serve. Now imagine if you're Judas and Jesus Jesus comes to you and begins to wash your feet. Hey, you ever have a hard time looking somebody in the eye? This would have been one of those moments. Look, Look what Jesus says, John 13, 10. Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Peter was like, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part of me. And Peter's like, then just don't wash my feet, wash my whole body. And Jesus says, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. He says, Peter, you are clean, though not every one of you. He's hinting that something's going on in this group of 12. 
And at some point, now we're speculating here, at some point we know that they go to the garden. There had to be conversation about this because Judas knows where they're going. So somebody says, let's go to the garden. Maybe it was Jesus, maybe it was another disciple. Because Judas knows where they're going. It was late, it's 12 o'clock, someplace, you know, midnight. Uh, The people will be gone. It would be a place uh, secluded. And uh, Judas had one problem. He was in a room with 12 other men. How does he get out of that room to go tell the Pharisees that Jesus is going to be in the garden in just a short period of time? And Jesus says this in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then he leans in to Judas. And he says, Judas, what you're about to do, do it quickly. Now Judas had to think, my cover's been blown. What made me think that I could actually pull this over on Jesus? And Jesus whispers to him, what you're about to do, do it quickly. My cover's blown. Judas had to think, I'm dying in this room. You know, Peter's been carrying that stupid sword for three years waiting to use it. He's going to bring it against me. And yet Jesus leans in and says, what you're about to do, do quickly. In other words, Jesus was saying, not only do I know what you're about to do, but I will not stop you. And you do as you feel is best. Judas excuses himself and the other disciples, except John, John knows, and so you can read that on your own. The other disciples think Judas is leaving to purchase supplies for the, uh, the, the feast, but he's going to get the Pharisees and the guards to meet them at the garden. Notice what Jesus says after Judas leaves. He says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified. So Judas leaves. The Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. Jesus is basically saying, look, everything's coming together. Nothing surprises me. Nothing's going to catch him off guard. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And the reason he's going to go through his passion, his suffering, is because of you. And because of me, it was the purchase back of that which was valuable to God, his creation, us. Now we go into John 18. Uh, keep in mind, uh, put up that image there, just keep in mind the uh, upper room was that lower red circle, it was in the upper city, so John 13 is where they're at, the Last Supper, the washing of feet, end of chapter John 14, Jesus says, uh, let us uh, leave this place, they go down through that lower gate, it was the Essene gate, most likely the only gate that was open for security reasons, it's 12, 1 o'clock at night, they're walking uh, and heading up through Kidron Valley, uh, through the Mount of Olives, eventually to that upper red circle into um, the garden. Verse 18. When Jesus had spoke these words, he went out with his disciples across the, book, the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers, from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they said to him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. Notice this next part. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Look, man, that would be something pretty cool to see. When I get to heaven, I'll be first in line at that red box because I want to see Jesus just saying, yeah, I'm he, and bam, everybody hits the ground. 
And so he asked them again, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. He answered again. He said, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he'd spoken. That of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one of them. Not one. Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it out. Now, the other uh, gospel writers say that some of the disciples asked, should we take out our swords and, and begin you know, a battle? But Peter's like, I don't even ask questions. I draw first and you know, figure it out later. And he swipes at the guy and he takes off his right ear. John gives us the name of the high priest service, servant, Malchus. And so Jesus said, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, other gospel writers tell us that G- Judas betrayed him with a kiss. And Jesus said, you, you, you betrayed me with the most intimate act. One of the most intimate acts between people. Now we don't know for sure what Judas thought would happen. Maybe he thought Jesus would be arrested and be, that he'd be brought before Caiaphas, who was the high priest. Maybe he thought that Caiaphas would throw him in jail for a little bit. Maybe thought that, that they would exile him. Uh, maybe they thought they, he could force Jesus into stepping into this role of, of a warrior when things get stirred up. But based upon his actions, we can be pretty sure that Judas did not think this was going to go the way of death. Judas discovers that Caiaphas takes Jesus to Pilate. Pilate was a Roman governor, a Roman official. Caiaphas is a high priest of the Jews. The Jews were allowed to put any punishment on another Jewish person without Roman permission except for one, execution. And so Judas was smart enough to know that when Jesus was brought by Caiaphas to Pilate, it was for one reason. They needed Roman approval to put Jesus to death. Look at what Matthew 27 says. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, and then to realize Jesus wasn't even putting up a fight, right? Saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and he turned in his 30 pieces of silver to the chief priest and the other and the elders. Jump down. Uh, I know I'm off my notes there, guys, but jump down to that next verse. Notice what he says. He goes to them and said, listen, man, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Notice the response. They said, what is that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. Here's, try to put some application to his story. What was once of extraordinary value, one minute, 30 pieces of silver, was worth absolutely nothing the next. What was worth betraying Jesus for one moment was an embarrassment the next. And Judas sacrificed his relationship with Jesus for something that he considered to be of great value, but later he would, listen, he would consider it his greatest regret. And that's our story our story some in the past and for some it may be your story at this moment that we've all turned from Jesus for something that we considered to be of great value of great pleasure of great benefit and we kind of denied Jesus turned from him for that which we considered uh, to to be uh, of great importance only later to realize it's lost its value 
And the things that I have my greatest regret over, and I would bet the things that you have your greatest regret over, are those things that you thought were too important that you had to have, or those things that you thought were too important and you had to keep, and you clutched onto them, and I clutched onto them, and I fought, and I got what I thought I wanted, and that which I thought was of great value turns out now to be my greatest regret. And typically, it's something that is no longer even in my life. But at one time, I was willing to sell Jesus out for that thing that I thought was that valuable. Judas' greatest regret was 30 pieces of silver that he gained. One moment it seemed worth it. Ultimately, it turned into the moment of his greatest remorse. Jesus once said, what does it profit a man if he'd gained the whole world, but he forfeits his soul? And Judas gained 30 pieces of silver 30 pieces of the world in silver, and yet he lost his soul. Have the band come up to close as we're going to take communion. At some point, all of us are tempted to trade our relationship with Jesus for something or somebody that we just have to have. Maybe like Judas, you realize that thing that you thought was that valuable. Maybe you've already seen it's not that valuable. Maybe you're in the throes of it. Now maybe, you're, maybe that's your season of life right now, that there's something that you feel, that pleasure, whatever it might be, that is too valuable, you have to have it. And one day, hear me, it may just turn out to be your greatest regret. And we spend our lives giving ourselves to those things which ultimately undermine our own happiness, our own joy, and God's story, God's plan for us, for something that typically is something that we don't even have in the end anyways. Every day it loses its value. And here's the thing about God. He does not stand in the way of my choices, even when he knows they're going to harm me. That God respects my freedom so much that he says, I know what you're about to do but I won't stop you. Because you have this, I, this thing of choice, and, and, and here's the thing, that when we resist God, when we choose not to surrender those things to God, we are responsible for that outcome. Put up that last scripture, if you wouldn't mind. The, the, you know, the, the, the high priest said, you know, what is that to us? He said, that's your responsibility. Can you put up that last scripture passage? Where they said, that's, that's your responsibility. We have, we have nothing uh, to, to do with that. That's on you. And when we, fail to res- when we fail to submit to God, our stories moving forward, the brokenness, the, the fragmented stories, is on us. But the beauty of the gospel is God says, when you repent, I take your story and I become responsible for it. That when you come to me, when you resist me, you're responsible for it. But when you come to me and when you fully submit and you're in submission, God says, I will take responsibility for your story moving forward as long as you stay close by. And so what does that look like for you today? Maybe it's not 30 pieces of silver. Maybe it's 30 minutes of pleasure. Maybe it's... 30 days of a binge. Maybe it's 30 years of rebellion. We're going to close in worship. We're going to partake of communion. I hope you use it as a time 
to appraise your own situation in your life. I hope it's a time to look over the arc of your life and ask, where am I not submitted to the things of God? Maybe there's something right now that that you're hanging on to and you know it's not God's best, but you're hanging on to it because you just have to have it. And maybe today, the Holy Spirit speaks to you about letting it go. Maybe today is the first time for some of you, the first time that you ask Jesus to come in to forgive your sins and to say, I'm just not believing in you. I'm submitting everything to you. When we come to that point of saying, it's not worth it. It's not worth separating myself from you. It's not worth the damage I'm doing in this relationship. It's not worth the damage I'm doing to myself. And I submit, God says, now we can work with the story moving forward. So as you're ready, partake of communion. I'd ask that you would consider to remain seated as you weigh this out. And maybe... When you stand, it's your symbol, your signal of saying, God, I've submitted it to you. I'm not pushing my agenda anymore. I'm not trying to get you to do my bidding. I yield myself to you. When you're ready, you can partake of communion. The wafers are underneath that first cup. We do this in remembrance of Jesus, who is hours away, scripturally, going to the cross. Lord, let our story be one of submission, one of surrender. Let this be my story. Let this be my song. One of perfect submission at rest in you. Lord, we yield ourselves. Recognize that I can come to you for what benefits me and thinking that you will get me out of a jam or out of a situation. But Lord, today I come because it's all about you. And I receive forgiveness and new life and a future, and a hope. But I will not cling to that which in the end will have no value. I surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, if you would like prayer, uh, we'll have some people down here who would love to pray for you. Uh, I hope that you... Uh, use times like this just to invite the presence of God upon you, to listen to God, to reflect. And um, I'm glad we're in this thing together. I look forward to seeing you back next week. God bless you guys.